Do you want to set your child up for success? Is tutoring out of your budget, or perhaps you're someone like me who just wants to save money on private tutoring? Is this a big school year for your child? You know, maybe they're starting kindergarten or middle school. Maybe there's another milestone coming up. Or maybe your family moved. Oh my gosh, I moved so much when I was growing up. And the kids are starting a new school. Or maybe your child is ahead and just not getting challenged enough in class. Well, IXL Learning is here to help. IXL Learning is a fun online learning program for kids covering math, language, arts, science, and social studies. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or the personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. That's right. It is school approved. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And how to be fine listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash fine. Visit IXL.com slash fine to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Again, that's IXL.com slash fine. Hello, and welcome to How to Be Fine. I'm Jalenta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. In each episode of How to Be Fine, we weigh in on what's happening in the world of happiness, health, and betterment, and we offer a bit of advice for those who want it. Now, full disclosure, we are not psychologists or psychiatrists or doctors of any kind, but we are very experienced self-help critics. We have lived by the rules of nearly 100 self-help books for our other podcast, By the Book. So we have tried on basically every kind of wellness trend there is out there. And besides, we're not here promising to make all of you the best, richest, most optimal versions of yourselves. If all goes well, we'll just help you feel a little closer to fine. Okay, Kristen, we have, as always, some great advice letters to get to later on in the show. But first, we have to kick things off with our hot topic. Tell us what it is, please. All righty. Today's hot topic is made-for-TV holiday movies as self-help. Oh, interesting. Now, Kristen... I know what you mean by made-for-TV holiday movies, but for any of our listeners out there who don't, could you be more specific? What do you mean exactly? Yes, I am talking about feature-length movies made specifically for TV with a holiday theme, usually about Christmas, but sometimes about Hanukkah, Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day, even Halloween, which I know you love, Jalenta. Yay! <laughs> more often than not, these movies have a romantic plot or subplot. Almost all of them have female leads. And to be clear, I am not talking about TV specials like Pee-wee's Christmas, which I love, or Judy mm. Garland's Christmas. I'm also not referring to animated or stop-motion children's TV specials like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or How the Grinch Stole Christmas. 
I'm talking a small town shop owner meets a big city developer who wants to put in a mall, but the spirit of Christmas shuts things down. Or a talented woman wants to join the town's most celebrated holiday choral group, but is forced to start her own competing choral group after being iced out. Kristen, was that second plot line you just gave for the movie The Mistletones, the one with Tia Maori and Tori Spelling? You know it is. And yes, I watch that every holiday season and maybe sometimes three or four times throughout the year also at other times. <laughs> right. 24-7. It's probably on right now in the other room. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Kristen, I know that holiday movies are a big part of your life, but I'm curious, why do they qualify as self-help? Oh, I will get to that in just a second. But first, for those of you out there who are about to turn off the show because you think Kristen has a unique obsession, this is not a broad-reaching format, most smart people don't watch this kind of stuff, I just want to dispel some of your presuppositions. Mm -hmm. First of all, I am far from the only person watching these movies. Hallmark, which is synonymous with TV holiday movies, ranks number one for both female viewership and total viewership during the fourth quarter of each year, which they uh, brand their countdown to Christmas. And Hallmark isn't the only network famous for their holiday movies. Lifetime, ABC Family, and Disney have been in the game for decades. And streaming networks like Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu have been in it for years. And all of these movies are highly ranked. They come out People watch them. It's not just me. It's true. No, I I see them in like that Netflix top 10 when one comes out. You know, Mm -hmm. you're right. You're not lying. (laughs) Lots of people are watching with you. Very occasionally me. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, yes, we make up one giant delusional viewing public. (laughs) At least that's what the naysayers say. But I hope the naysayers learn a little something from what I am going to be presenting today. You want them to go from saying nay to yay. Ooh, nay to Noel. I don't know. (laughs) Something along those lines. (laughs) So here's how this is going to work. I am going to list some of the most prevailing criticisms of made-for-TV holiday movies, and then I'm going to push back a bit against those criticisms, bringing in mental health research and other research that I think will be illuminating for a lot of folks out there. My goal, of course, will not be to convince everyone out there to subscribe to the Hallmark Channel. You don't have to if you don't want to. I'm not going to force you to do that, but I do just want to encourage people to have a more nuanced point of view on this particular genre, one that might actually be beneficial to your mental health. All right, I'm on board. Can we get to the first criticism? And can I say it? Because it's my main criticism too. Yes. And that is, these are predictable movies. The love (laughs) interests always get together. The small town blank, hotel, square, clock tower, you name it. The small town blank (laughs) is saved. The girl gets to join the whatever group, the design team, the cupcake shop, the singing group. (laughs) Like, they're all so predictable. The twist is always we get what we want, like Miracle of Christmas. Joletta, I don't disagree with you on that. They are totally 
predictable. There are never going to be any major plot twists. There are never going to be any jump scares. There's never going to be a shocking reveal. The most shocking reveal is actually going to feel like a gentle hand massage. Nothing (laughs) crazy is ever going to happen. And we usually know the broad strokes of any of these movies within the first five minutes, you know, somewhere between the conundrum and the meet cute. We know what the whole thing is going to be about. So I don't disagree with that. But Media psychologist Pamela Rutledge from the Fielding Graduate University doesn't see this as a bad thing. She writes, the human brain loves patterns and the predictability of these films is cognitively rewarding. They draw on patterns we recognize from fairy tales and offer comfort by presenting life as simple and moralistic. She goes on to say that because these films are easy to digest and bonus overflowing with positive emotions like hope, joy, and gratitude, they are heart healthy. These are her words. They reduce stress hormones like cortisol that can damage the cardiovascular and immune system. In other words, they are actually good for you. Okay. Okay. I buy it. I definitely feel less tense watching a holiday movie than, you know, Saw. (laughs) I buy it. I buy that my heart's working a little less hard. (laughs) What's the next criticism that these movies tend to get? Well, criticism number two is that they are unrealistic. You know, all those things that you talked about, Jolenta, about how predictable they are. There's also like, along with that predictability, a lot of things that just don't normally happen. Like, oh, a little kid writes to Santa asking for a new man for my mom. Please, Santa, bring a man for my mom. And then Santa delivers the new man in just the nick of time for Christmas. You know, things like that. St. Nick. I see what you did Yeah. See? see? Yeah. There's a lot of unrealistic stuff that happens. Right, right. Lots of the miracle of Christmas helped make it. So, like, yay. Yeah, yeah. And as you alluded to, Jolenta, that small town clock in the square, it's saved by, I don't know, a school teacher putting on a play or something. like That somehow gets a billion dollar donation and is like, gonna go to Broadway. It's like, what? (laughs) All right, so I'm just going to push back a little bit against this. Yes, unrealistic, it's true. But first and foremost, I got to rebut that saying psychologists actually see benefits in these movies' lack of realism. Mm. Courtney Hope, licensed marriage and family therapist and senior manager of clinical operations at BetterHelp, says made-for-TV holiday movies provide, quote, a nice vacation from reality for our brains where we can suspend belief and imagine a world where the good guys always win, families always resolve their differences, the main character always finds true love, and there's always enough money for the most magical and extravagant dream Christmas gift or trip for the whole family. This can be especially soothing when we're dealing with the very real psychological and financial stresses of the holidays. And according to Cope, it also gives the fear center of our brain, aka the amygdala, a break while also, quote, lighting up the anterior cingulate cortex, which is the part of our brain connected to emotional awareness, pain management, and anticipating future outcomes. On top of that, Pamela Rutledge, who I quoted before, says the laughter and joking about unrealistic movie tropes with your family, with your friends, you know, joking with your mm-hmm. friends as we are right now, Jolenta, about how unrealistic right, these are. Right, 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 These actually create positive bonding experiences as well as a safe space to process 
personal struggles and feel supported by others, especially when we know that all of these unrealistic movies all have a happy ending. It can be really good to laugh with others and then bring us out of our shell and get us to talk about the things that maybe aren't happy in our own lives. Right. And I just want to add one more thing to this. I personally have a pet peeve with people saying this kind of film is unrealistic because as I see it, Lots all of stuff's films are unrealistic. All of them are. Like, is the Fast and the Furious franchise a picture of how life actually is in the world? Or The Martian? I mean, come on. Right. At first I was like, they're unrealistic and corny, but it's like going back to like the beginning of like performance art as we know it. Like <laughs> the Greek tragedies at the festivals for Dionysus, like those always had a deus ex machina. The heavens yes. always opened up and God helped, you know, extricate our hero or bring the lovers together or what have yes. you. Yes. And it's like, oh, right. That's been at the core of our storytelling since the beginning. So who am I to like give it shit in this format? Yeah. And especially nowadays, the people who say these kinds of films are unrealistic don't usually throw the same criticisms at films starring men or written right. by men. Right, they aren't saying that about Lord of the Rings as much. Yeah, and it's like, I know a lot of you believe in elves and hobbits, that's fine, but is that more realistic than a woman who owns a bakery falling in love? Eh, I don't know. Honestly? Hmm. <laughs> What's the next criticism we've got for these movies? All right, criticism three they present a narrow view of the world. It has been argued mm. that made-for-TV holiday movies are rife with unexamined whiteness, gender conformity, heterosexual assumptions, and patriarchal family norms. And I'm just going to say here and now, I do not disagree with these arguments. This has historically been true for a lot of made-for-TV movies of all types, not just made-for-TV holiday movies. This, right. this is just part of the format historically. That being said, there are and always have been made-for-TV holiday movies that push back against all of these things. I myself have personally watched literally hundreds of made-for-TV holiday movies that embrace diverse characters and storylines. And just for example, Lifetime, Hallmark, Hulu, and Netflix all have holiday films with gay and lesbian lead characters. A few titles include Dashing in December, Gay Cowboys, The Christmas Setup, which is about a guy rekindling some love with maybe this other guy in his high school, Single All the Way, The Christmas House, The Hollywood Sitter, Happiest Season, Under the Christmas Tree. And that is me naming just a few mm -hmm. of the queer holiday movies. And then the same networks I mentioned above, as well as Disney+, Plus, Amazon, and ABC Family, also have loads of holiday films with non-white leads. For example, A Diva's Christmas Carol starring Vanessa Williams, which I know you also love, Jolenta. I know that one. That was a oh, good yeah. one. Snow Globe starring Christina Milian. The Merry Little series of films starring Kelly Rowland. The Christmas Calendar starring Cat Graham. All of the Princess Switch movies, there are so many of them, starring Vanessa Hudgens. Love Hard, which has not one but two Asian male romantic leads. The aforementioned Mistletones, starring Tia mm -hmm. Maori. There are so many, not dozens, but hundreds of movies out there that show diverse stories. They really are there. So there's basically no shortage of diverse holiday movies. You just have to, like, look at the holiday movie selection. Yes, <laughs> Which a lot yes. of people are not doing. And, and I would say if you are one of those people who's only watching white straight characters in your holiday movies, 
to me, that's a choice at this point because you don't have to choose that. There's like so many other options. So, Kristen, let's move on. What's your fourth criticism going to be? All right. Criticism number four is that they're lowbrow. You know, they have tiny (laughs) budgets. They look shabby. They star D-list celebrities at best and no-name actors at worst. They're all filmed in under three weeks and they look like it. And again, I'm just going to say, yes, a lot of this is true. Although Lindsay Lohan will never be D-list to me. Oh, not to me either. I I know she is to the Gen Z kids, but she's not to me. She's not to us. And she's been in a holiday movie recently. So yes. And and I enjoyed it. But go on. They're lowbrow. Yes. Well, I I just want to say as far as the lowbrow stuff, you know what? Maybe this is true, but I don't think that is a bad thing. I personally find the overstuffed budgets and lengthy shooting schedules of mainstream Hollywood productions to be offensive and wasteful, both fiscally and environmentally. And I think that a lot of the New York and L.A. bigwigs could actually learn something valuable from actually just spending a few weeks on set with these movies as they're being made, these holiday movies, because they know how to be scrappy. They know how to be thrifty, and they know how to be creative in making workarounds happen. They know how to make one town square set look like a billion different town squares. Yes, they do. They're really good at it. And <laughs> I, I just... I really admire that. No, there's they are scrappy. That's a good way to put it. They're scrappy and they can churn them out like way faster than a lot of big budget productions can get churned out. Yeah. They also serve as training grounds for writers and Hollywood doesn't give a lot of training ground to writers, but made for TV holiday movies are that training ground for a lot of people. They provide steady work for production teams in smaller markets. You know, maybe you're not New York or LA. Maybe you're a smaller town in Tennessee or North Carolina or outside of Minneapolis. And that's great, not only for those production teams, but there's then a spillover effect, boosting local businesses that provide catering, transportation, hospitality, and so on. So it really helps smaller markets to employ people and keep those smaller markets afloat. And now I just want to also talk about the D-list stars, which everyone makes fun of the movies for. So many of these D-listers are, as you and I said, Jolenta, not D-list to us. (laughs) Right. Many of them are former child actors who've reached middle age or they're other women in their 40s and 50s. And we know Hollywood hates women in their 40s and 50s. Right. But made-for-TV holiday movies embrace these women. They employ people like Holly Robinson-Pete or Danica McKellar, Tia and Tamara Maori, Melissa Joan Hart. The list goes on and on. And I personally applaud that. I am all for women working in their 40s and 50s, representing, not just going off to pasture and disappearing from the world forever. Like, come on. Are you kidding me? Like, you're supposed to just disappear now because you turned 40? What? No, fuck that. I say the same thing about Real Housewives all the time. Like, there are talented women providing great entertainment, and they happen to be middle-aged. And, like, it's one of the only places you're seeing these women on the Mm -hmm. screen. And, hmm, maybe that's part of why it's called lowbrow, because it's, like, women that don't typically appear on screen are doing it again, like, despite Hollywood's wishes, almost. Yeah. And it's like, if this is so lowbrow, by the way, if all these, quote, old women are so lowbrow, then why are they bringing in so many 
billions of dollars in advertising money every fourth right. quarter of the year with these movies because they're bringing in a lot of money. Yeah. Then why does Kristen watch these movies year round along with a lot of <laughs> other people? Exactly. Exactly. All right. What's the next criticism? We're at number five, the fifth criticism. Yes. And this is going to be my final criticism as well, because, okay. you know, otherwise we're going to be here for seven more hours. But <laughs> <laughs> criticism number five is that made for holiday movies are anti-feminist. You know, there is a stereotype that mm. the female protagonists in these movies always choose love over their own professional and personal aspirations. For example, giving up their big city job for a small town maple syrup farmer. You know, we've all <laughs> seen that story. <laughs> right. And while that's certainly the case in some of these films, it's not the most common plotline at all. Hallmark, in particular, has come to embrace storylines in which the heroines must decide on whether to pursue a new career that maybe suits their passions a little bit more. So, for example, in Christmas at Dollywood, yes, I've seen this more than once, <laughs> an event planner played by Danica McKellar, she loves her job, but she also enjoys writing. So she is, you know juggling these two ideas of two jobs she loves. And in The Christmas List, Alicia Witt, she weighs her corporate design job against her dream to open her own boutique. She loves both of her jobs. What do you do when you have this great design job, but you also, you know, want to open a boutique? So there's still a romantic plot line in these films, but the women are not giving up everything they want for a man. They're just really weighing one dream against another dream, which... What's wrong with that? Right. And as Allison Abra, professor in the Department of History at the University of Manitoba, writes, that's a good thing. Professor Abra writes, at a basic level, feminism is about women's agency. And by portraying women who have options and who make their own choices about work and love, some Hallmark Christmas movies actually offer a subtle feminist message about the power of women to take their lives in whatever direction they want, whether toward the personal or the professional. That's right. They're feminist, according to a professor. Well, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll also add that these holiday movies have another feminist component, and that's who the stories are about and who's making them. I already mm. hinted a little bit about that when we were talking about older women on screen. Right, right. But let's get a little bit more specific here. According to the Gina Davis Institute in Gender and Media, in mainstream Hollywood movies, there's only one female speaking role for every two male speaking roles. And oftentimes, these female roles are not even integral to the plot. Your job as a woman in this role may simply be to say, oh, Jeff, don't go out there. It's so dangerous. Or, oh, I love you, honey. That might be your only job as a woman with a speaking role. And if you want to go into female lead characters, not just female speaking characters, but lead characters, the stats are even worse, significantly worse. Meanwhile, look at some made-for-TV holiday movies. You'll catch on right away to the fact that women mm. are almost always the leads. Right. They almost always have female friends, moms, other women who are on screen with them. And that's not just on screen. This extends to the director's chair. According to the Annenberg Institute, only 12.7% of mainstream films were directed by women in 2021, while streaming networks that produce made-for-TV films, like Amazon and Disney+, Plus, have 37.5% mm. and 29% female directors, respectively. So that is a huge difference. 12.7% females versus 
37.5% females in the director's Yeah, board. It's definitely. a huge difference. Yeah. And on top of that, the executives at these networks are frequently women. Hallmark Media's president and CEO, Wanya Lucas, she is a woman and she's also black. And Lifetime's executive vice president and head of programming, Amy Winter, is a woman as well. Okay. So in other words, even if the plots feel like the stuff of like, you know, romance novels, these movies aren't necessarily anti-feminist. Yes. And like the way they're made is perhaps more pro-female than we thought. Yeah. And they're not perfect by any means, but I don't think they should be completely just dismissed either. Right. Also, as far as romance paperbacks, we may need to cover those on another day. Yeah. Because I have thoughts on those too. <laughs> so, Jolenta, now that I have presented my case mm-hmm. that maybe made-for-TV movies are actually good for women, good for mental health, good for society. Right. Do you feel differently about them? Are you going to now watch 200 movies in the next 20 hours? What are you going to do? I feel a bit differently. You've made me feel more okay with the, like, one or two that I do watch per year. I'm sorry (laughs) it is not more. I usually watch one or two, and usually it's with Brad, often at his request, and it is fun. It is a little mood boost. And now I'm like, okay, it's justified. It's not like some guilty pleasure. It's like, I enjoy it because I enjoy watching like women work. I enjoy predictability. Like you said, we tend to like, I enjoy the comforting sort of Christmas miracle that always happens, you know? So I'm probably not going to watch more, but I'm going to feel less guilty about watching Falling for Christmas last year, the Lindsay Lohan movie where she gets amnesia on a ski trip and ends up, you know, falling for the small town lodge owner whose lodge is going to have to close. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad that you're going to watch without guilt. I don't think there's any need for guilt with these movies. But I'm also really curious about all of our listeners out there, Jolenta, aren't you? I'm wondering... How many of them actually watch these movies as well? Yeah, let us know. KristenAngelenta at gmail.com, facebook.com slash group slash KristenAngelenta. But Kristen, how about you? Are you going to watch even more Christmas movies this year? How many do you think you've watched this year? Do you watch one every day? Yes. I usually start in October and I go through January and I usually watch at least one made-for-TV holiday movie per day. Wow. In that small quarter of the year I call the Christmas season. The small quarter of a year, just, you know, one whole quarter. <laughs> yeah, that's not changing, not for me. And, you know, maybe other people will feel more open to watching those movies with me. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> like we said, let us know what your holiday movie habits are. Do you like the made-for-TV ones? Do they make you feel good? Do you disagree with all the information Kristen found and still think they're bad? <laughs> Let <laughs> <Yeah>. us know. <laughs> Hit us up on Instagram, too, at How to Be Fine Pod. Coming up, a letter writer is grappling with a shopping habit. We're back with our first letter of the day. Jolenta, what do they have to say? 
Our letter writer says, Dear Kristen and Jalenta, how do you scratch the I deserve a little treat spot created in our brain by consumerism without buying anything? I have a high stress job. And when I've had a bad week, I get that reward yourself by shopping bug. Intellectually, I know I don't need it. But doing the work to remind myself and coach myself doesn't exactly turn a frown upside down. Before the pandemic, I bought clothes when I was having a bad day. In the past, I have made a shopping cart online, but then only bought one in four items. Unfortunately, this still added up to one expensive dress I'll never wear per month. I've also tried placing holds on library books, but this doesn't scratch the itch. Maybe because libraries are free. What is some advice for dealing with emotional shopping? Oh, letter writer. I I feel for you. I think I've mentioned on the show before. Right. I know I've mentioned it. I love my eBay cart. Love to look at what's out there, put some things in the cart. I personally love the hunt of it. I like looking for that one thing, that one thing in my size from that era. I also really enjoy going thrift shopping, you know, looking through all of the racks. Am I going to see that one cute mod dress that I'm going to love? And back in the day when I was online dating, I also loved the hunt there. I would put all sorts of boys in my cart. Yeah, she had a full cart. (laughs) I did have a full cart of boys. Men, I should say. I had a full cart (laughs) of men. (laughs) So I, I understand the joy of putting something in a shopping cart. I definitely get that. But also, this sounds like it is causing you some emotional distress because you're buying things that you are never going to wear in your life. Expensive dresses you'll never wear. Every time you open your closet, then you're given that reminder of like, oh, am I a bad person? Look at how I spend Mm -hmm. my money. And, And that can feel very distressing, right? And then also that feeling of like, why aren't library books good enough for me? Why can't I just enjoy something for free? That's also, you know, that can be tough to deal with. Like, what kind of person am I that I can't enjoy free things? So I just want to say I feel for you and Obviously, this is upsetting for you. So we're so sorry you're feeling that way. Right. This is a tough one. And I think we've all dealt with this in some way, shape, or form. And I know the feeling when you're like, this isn't cutting it. Mm -hmm. For me, in regard to this issue, a few things have helped. One thing is trying to hunt for something else, Mm -hmm. trying to hunt for like some piece of information online. If you like, like the online search. Mm, Yes. Going for a walk and being like, I have to see seven different kinds of bird before I can like go in or like my goal is to identify like four different types of flower or something, something to keep you sort of challenged and like on the prowl and something that will give you that quick little like boost of adrenaline when you do see a bird or like go like that's a pansy (laughs) Um, is it's not always as exciting as shopping but I have found like sort of directing my hunt towards something I find aesthetically pleasing like birds or plants can help keep me a little busy also I like variety packs. When you do shop, sometimes you can get like samples from a makeup brand of like three different kinds of concealer they make or like five different kinds of little shampoo bars. And, you know, 
maybe get those instead of getting one whole big thing of shampoo. And then when you're feeling down, be like, I'm going to like peruse my little store of shampoo bars and try this new one today. And you can sort of get the feeling of enjoying that thing you already purchased in almost a purchasey way. That's always really helped me. I really enjoy like a variety pack of nail polishes and being like, oh my gosh, today's pink day. So it sort of helps like dole out the purchase I made. Oh, I love these suggestions, Jolenta. I love them. I'm just going to add a few more things. Piggybacking on your idea of like, have a collection of things and then treat yourself to them. You know, dole Mm -hmm. it out gradually. I love shopping my own closet. Every once in a while, I'll just say, you know what, I'm going to come up with outfits that I haven't worn in a long time or that I've never combined items to make before. Last year, I went all out doing this. I wore one foundation item, a little black dress for 101 days, and I tried to make 101 different outfits out of that little black dress. And it really challenged me. It scratched some of that shopping itch where I'm like, I'm shopping my own closet. I'm making unusual outfits. They're not always working. Some of the outfits look great. Some of them don't look great. But it kind of forced me to shop my own closet in a totally different way that scratched some of that itch. Something else that I do to scratch that itch myself is I like to bargain shop the grocery store. So for example, when I go to Target, I always make a beeline for discount foods. You know, the shelf that has those little red stickers on them um, where it's like, oh, what would I use here? If I actually got this tapioca pudding, would I make it? Oh, here's something that's on the discount food shelves that I haven't had in a long time. Oh, I could make a really fun recipe that I've been thinking of making with this bone broth that's on the discount shelf. You know, so I find that that doesn't feel wasteful to me because I'm buying something that's already on sale and I'm kind of daring myself to make something with that discount food item that I know I'm going to eat. This is not something that's just going to be in my closet for the next six years taunting me like an expensive dress. This is like something I'm going to actually cook with and enjoy or make a different kind of dish with. And so I found that buying those discount foods helps. And also we have this produce market that's pretty new by my house. I think I've told you about Jolenta. It just opened a few months ago and they sell produce that's really only good for maybe at the most 48 hours after you buy it. (laughs) But everything they sell, it's like, 25 bananas for a dollar or the the prices. I call that dare produce. Yeah. I dare dare you to buy this and actually eat all these strawberries before there's fuzz on them. Because they're this close. They're this close. Like, or are you going to freeze them and then turn them into a dessert or a jam later? So I'd like to do that as well. You know, go to that local produce market, see their extremely cheap produce, and then just, you know, get something there. Last week, I think it was four English cucumbers for a dollar I got. And I'm like, I'm going to make some Greek salad and I'm going to love it. And I did. I ate that Greek salad for the next two days. It was delicious. So I find that that kind of food shopping instead scratches that itch. It never makes me feel guilty or bad in the same way of like, do I want to contribute to textile waste by buying another dress I'm never going to wear? But it makes me feel way better when it's food or, you know, Maybe secondhand shopping will also work for you, letter writer. One last thing I want to add, though, if this is really distressing and it feels like a genuine addiction, something that is interfering with the happiness of your life, 
know that there's help out there. Shopping addiction is an actual recognized issue, a mental health it's issue. It's a real addiction. Like, yeah, it really is. not a joke. Yeah. In the U.S. alone, approximately 18 million adults suffer from compulsive buying disorder or compulsive shopping. So you're not alone in this. There are support groups. There is uh, therapy that specializes in this area. Right. So you don't have to go it alone if you feel like this is an actual thing that's interfering with your life. So please don't feel like you have to go it alone. Uh, don't feel like this little bit of advice Jolent and I are giving you is the only help you have. There's other help out there as well. Right. Yeah. We love therapy here. Yes. Okay. We are going to take a quick break. But before we do, we would like to ask you, could you take a second and rate us and review us wherever you're listening in your podcast player? You can probably just look down, find a little place to hit, hit some stars, maybe hit all five, write a little note to us, tell us what you like about the show. It helps us make more of what you like, and it also helps people find the show. So don't forget to rate us and review us. Coming up, a letter writer wants to be more inclusive. Stay with us. We're back with our second letter of the day. Kristen, take it away. All righty. Dear Kristen and Jolenta, I'm a longtime listener of By the Book and How to Be Fine, and I know you've talked about how many self-help authors use and reuse quotes from white males only. I'm a curriculum developer, and I like using quotes in the training I create, but I'm running into the same problem. Every time I Google quotes about X, I get quotes from almost exclusively white people and mostly white men. I'd really like to make my training more inclusive. Do you know of any sources where I could find quotes from more diverse authors? Such a good question, listener. We also have to come up with quotes for our Patreon episodes, or we used to. We've recently changed the format. Check it out. We talk about what we're reading. But back to quotes. We also are quote finders. And I have to say, for me... There were no specific sources, just specific searches. Mm -hmm. I realized pretty quickly what you realized, that if you just search, like, quotes about basically anything from cooking to politics, like, you're going to get male quotes first. So you have to go in thinking about inclusivity more holistically and searching for, like, Quotes from women about this. Quotes from non-binary creators mm -hmm. about this. Quotes from, you know, basically anyone who's non-white. Um, but like <laughs> searching for the specifics and finding quotes there. Or if you really know the area you're interested in, searching for experts that aren't white and male and then looking for quotes from them specifically. That's yes. how I've been doing it. But you have to get specific. You have to learn to be like, oh, I don't have any quotes from people of Asian descent. I need to specifically search for those now. Yes, yes, absolutely. I actually have a whole chapter on this in my book, So You Want to Start a Podcast, because it was something that I would come up against again and again right. and again. And as you know, Jolenta, it would drive me nuts. I would be trying to advise people on their own podcast show development, on their guest lists, on the quotes they used in their shows. 
And it just was over and over again, like, why is this 90% male and why is this 90% white? And so my chapter in the book actually talks about how to go about searching for those quotes or search Mm. for those experts. And exactly as Jolenta is saying, you have to sometimes Google the specifics. I call it Googling the words you're afraid to Google. Maybe it's scary for you to type in the words, quotes from lesbian Boy Scout leaders. Maybe that feels scary. Or quotes from black physicists. Maybe that feels scary. But keep Googling those words because black is not a dirty word. Lesbian is not a dirty word. None of these are dirty words, and they might make you feel Neither weird Neither is first. physicist. No. I know <laughs> physicists can be evil, especially in outer space when they have lasers, but not all physicists. <laughs> but, you know, it might feel weird at first. It might feel scary. It might feel like, oh, I was brought up to be colorblind and not even say the word black. But you know what? Say the word. Type in the word. That is how you will find what you're looking for. And I would say that also applies to images. If you're including any images Mm, in your presentations, mm -hmm. don't just type in family eating dinner. Type in black family eating dinner. Type in black couple walking on the beach. Type in Asian family on a picnic. You know, whatever it is, type in those words. And the more you type them in, the less intimidating it'll be, the more you'll realize like, this is something I have to do because the world treats white as a right. default still. The world treats male as the default. And all you're doing is trying to fight back against that idiotic default that the world has set up. Right. I was just going to say the world is set up to highlight straight, white, cis, male voices. So like diversity won't just happen naturally by like trickling in. You do have to consciously go out and look for it and make it happen. But if you keep doing it and other people keep doing it, it will become the norm. And then in the future, people be able to just Google like quotes from physicists and all sorts of colors and or sexual orientations and gender orientations will show up. But in the meantime, we have to do that legwork. Yeah, absolutely. So try a few of these tips we suggested and also check out my book. So you want to start a podcast. It's in all the libraries. It's actually a really good book. I'm not just saying this (laughs) because Kristen is one of the loves of my life. It's a really good book. It's a funny, quick read. That's actually like super, super informative. So highly recommend. Oh, thanks, Jolenta. Yeah. And you don't have to read the whole thing. Just read that section on how to look for diversity and incorporate it into your own work. I really hope that helps. And that's it for this episode of How to Be Fine. Huge thank you to our executive producer, Nora Ritchie, our producer, Chantel Holder, and our composer and engineer, Casey Holford. If you haven't already, check out all of our fabulous merch at podswag.com slash be fine. We have so much fun stuff there, not just for the holidays, but for any time. Items that will make you feel a little more fine. A bucket hat, a tank top. <laughs> a candle. We have so much. (laughs) Until next time, I'm Talenta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See you next week. Until then, stay fine. Stitcher. 